Welcome to Menopause, Marriage and Motherhood, a podcast that's all about changing the way we view midlife and bringing the conversation about menopause out into the open. Each week we share stories, experiences and inspiration. We talk to experts on how to best navigate this time of life and find out how other people have not only survived but thrived through this time. I'm your host, Karen O'Connor. Hello and welcome. Today I'm here with James Jensen, who is, I've got to read this now, an integrated pharmacist, a functional medicine expert. Thank you. Uh, Welcome, James. Thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. So you're going to need to explain that to me. What is, and what is it? Integrated pharmacist and functional medicine expert. Sure. So integrated pharmacist is basically the, I mean, the word integrative really gives it away. So traditionally I'm a pharmacist, so I've got a bachelor of pharmacy, but then I've gone off and done some studies. So the integrative part means I sort of work with traditional medicine, but also integrate with natural and more holistic medicine. And essentially what a functional medicine practitioner is, someone that looks to focus and and work on the root cause of disease or illness. Wow. And then the functional medicine bit, how does that come in? Yeah, so that's really the where the root cause part comes in. So for an example, rather than use a medication for reflux, I'll sort of work to work out why the reflux is happening in the first place. So it's a little bit different to the traditional pharmacy in the sense, you know, by the time you're taking your medication, you're sort of band-aiding something, so to speak. Whereas the functional part is really getting to the root cause and treating that. And traditionally, functional medicine is very holistic. So it's looking at disease from a nutritional point of view and and working with herbs or supplements or other nutrients um, and other lifestyle factors to treat it. Yeah, so it's a pretty fun and interesting space to work in, especially uh, for those people who don't want to just take a medication. It's really interesting you say that because for a few years now, I've thought it's like most of our Western kind of medicine, they treat the symptom, but not necessarily the cause. And even just applying that to menopause, I've I've shared this a few times, but when I started on perimenopause, didn't know what the heck was happening, went to the doctor and she said to me, oh, here's some antidepressants, here's some sleeping tablets, you'll be okay in a few years. That was just dealing with the symptoms. It didn't explain anything to me. It didn't support me with managing the hormones or anything else. So it's great that you're doing what you're doing because you do look at that kind of thing. That's what you're saying, is it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Perimenopause is a great place because, yes, your neurotransmitters get affected. You know, using an antidepressant, I guess, is the the traditional first-line treatment from a medical point of view, but it kind of fails to address what's really going on. So yes, there's hormonal changes, but it's the hormonal changes that affect the neurochemistry. So simply just putting a Band-Aid on it with antidepressant doesn't always sit well with people. And if it's not treating the root cause, often people get unwanted side effects. You know, it's, for an example, antidepressants can, you know, are well known to cause weight gain. Perimenopause is a time where women are already battling with their weight. So it can compound the problem and women might be feeling more stressed because of it, which further compounds the perimenopause and we get stuck in this trap in this cycle. And and I guess that's why we're, when I'm seeing people in clinic, they're sort of at their wits end. And that's really where integrated medicine and functional medicine, we kind of get treated like the last stop when people have given up and tried everything else. But we always say, you know, you need to see us first. 
you know, if we can't fix it, then, you know, we can send you on. Yeah. How did you end up doing integrate? Because you got a Bachelor of Pharmacology, is it? Um, pharmacy, yeah. Pharmacy. So you obviously yeah. went the traditional route. What made you change from the traditional route to holistic? Or did you have that in mind prior to doing it? Well, I certainly didn't have it in, in mind prior. And I can tell you now, I, I used to boohoo natural medicine which is quite ironic, especially doing what I do now. I spend more time taking people off medications and putting them on them. But I guess where I did my internship, the fellow who owned the pharmacy, he actually started his pharmacy degree, which was actually uh, an apprenticeship back then. So he was born in early 1930s. And so with his traditional sort of way to learn or practice pharmacy was with a lot of you know, herbs and things like that. And that's where you're compounding from scratch. And so he had a little bit of a, an original bias towards natural medicine. And I thought, well, who am I to get in the way of what's been working? Because he would come into the pharmacy and say, where's this tincture? Where's that? And I said, oh, we don't use that. I've never heard of that before. So he would teach me a few little things. And I thought, oh, maybe there's something in this. And then the the pharmacy I was running, we actually had a naturopath employed. Over the years, I got to to talking to him and I discovered that, oh, hang on, there's a different way to do things and it isn't just all witches' cauldrons. Little bit by little bit, I learned more and more and I became increasingly passionate about it and then working with patients with it, maybe dispense a, it's just something simple like you dispense a, a script and then you might you know, offer a, a probiotic or something like that and someone takes it and comes back and says, oh, this made a huge difference. And I thought, well, hang on a minute, maybe there's more to it and then that's really what got me started. And so did you go on to do another study after you did that or did you just like a formal qualification or did you yeah. just keep learning? Yeah, so mostly um, self-taught and I, I, I'm currently doing my master's in, in human nutrition at the moment to formalise what I know. But essentially it's all self-taught and there, there are a lot of similarities it's just in the, the the way that they word things. When you're looking at the mode of action of a herb or a nutrient, it it still applies with pharmacology. It's just sometimes they use different uh, names. So like to use an example, like St. John's wort is in the pharmacy world is a serotonin reuptake inhibitor. But in natural medicine, it's sometimes referred to as a nerve tonic. So it's just, a, I guess it wasn't that difficult to translate some of that knowledge across and I think originally I didn't think there was much science around this stuff. It was all just all these old books that sort of would be passed on from generation to generation. But I soon realized that there's a plethora of information and studies and, and trials to research. It's really fascinating that you say that about St. John's Wort because the number of men, <laughs> I tend to live a very high, <laughs> high level of, I live on adrenaline or I used to. Yes. I tried to calm down. So St. John's Wort was always the one or one of the ones that people, naturopaths used to say to me, you need to take St. John's Wort. I didn't know it was an inhibitor. How many other things in terms of the natural herbs and medicine have you found that could be fitted in to what you're doing, but aren't. I think also understanding the fact that most medicines have some sort of natural origin anyhow. So 
what we learned at uni was that often the laboratories, they would go and grab all these natural compounds and test them for activity. And then what they do is once they find the activity, they then try and isolate that specific compound. Particularly, I, I guess, in the context of things like perimenopause and menopause, berberine is a herb that I like to use, which acts very similar in a very similar way to metformin, the drug metformin. And part of menopause and perimenopause is women become more insulin resistant. And that basically means they don't handle carbohydrates as well due to the changes in estrogen. And what uh, metformin is a drug that you would give someone with type 2 diabetes to reverse that sensitivity. But in clinical trials, berberine as a herb acts in the exact same way, just as effectively. So there's a, a good example of I guess, something that can be used really effectively that's um, got a very similar mode of action. And there's, I guess, there's countless examples. But the beauty of natural medicine is it often doesn't just have one effect. Like, for example, you mentioned St. John's Ward again, and it's actually a much better antiviral than it is an antidepressant. So I've actually used it more for treating viruses and things like warts than I do for depression. It's really interesting. And something else that I was going to say, if the pharmaceutical companies are taking a plant and then finding out the whatever ingredient it is that makes a difference and isolating that, but that uh, where my brain went was if they're just isolating the one ingredient and we're getting that in isolation, is that what causes side effects? Whereas when it's in the plant and you've got all this other stuff surrounding it, you don't have as many side effects because there's kind of a buffer to it. It kind of balances it out. I don't know. That's where my brain yes. went with it. Yeah, you're exactly right. So as a whole plant, you've got all these other little cofactors. When you have it as a like a whole herb or a whole plant, you're getting all the benefit of that. Whereas when you just isolate a certain nutrient, it doesn't work anywhere near you know, as effectively. And that's, I guess, why you see, like you said, you pointed out, you can see side effects or they just don't stand up to clinical trial. So you know, turmeric is a good example of that. And when they try and find or isolate a certain compound, often it doesn't work as well as it does as a whole plant because you're missing all those other little co-nutrients that support and 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 add that synergy. So it's it's really the synergy of nutrients. And I guess that's why it comes back to the basics, you know, good diet and, and eating things in their whole form. And certainly there is some benefit to doing extractions because you can get a better standardization. For example, a turmeric plant grown in your backyard is going to yield different properties to a turmeric I grow in my backyard. And that's one of the issues that natural medicine faces is that it's very difficult to standardize the safety and quality of a product against another without doing some form of extraction or isolation. So yeah, it's a, it's a challenge that's faced, but I guess, and, you know, to use another example, some of the herbs that are grown overseas work really wonderfully. And then we go and do a clinical trial off a different species or a plant that's grown in a different area. It's the same plant, but grown differently and it doesn't work as well. And that comes back to the soil quality, the conditions that it's grown in. And yeah, so it can be quite complicated. Yeah. Oh, again, my brain's making little patterns here. <laughs> but I, where I went with that was when you get, I can't remember what it's called, when food types that grow well together, you know, when you plant in a garden and they say plant this one next to that one because it tastes better and blah, blah. You've got all that, those kind of factors in there, haven't you? Because yep, what absolutely. grows well in France is not going to grow well in Western Australia, let's say. Yeah, exactly. They're all things that we have to factor in. And even seasonally, the, the plants and, and what they do 
changes. So uh, some of the formulations we use, I can see, you know, changes in the color of the herbs, depending on where they've been picked in the season. So there's all these factors to account for. And and not that it needs to be overcomplicated. I just, it, it just gets back to the basics and understanding the way that the saying as it goes is nature knows best. And the more we try and interfere, sometimes we don't get as good results. Must have had a massive impact on you about what you'd been taught at university and what you'd assumed. What happened in that moment when, or, or in those moments when you began to realize that, oh, hang on a minute, it's not what I, what everybody thinks it is. Yeah, it's pretty. It's quite humbling, and I think you at first have to swallow your your pride and put your ego aside because I know certainly I thought you know, I'm the I've been to uni, I'm an expert, I know all these things, and this is science. And I, I guess I don't want to say indoctrinated, but you kind of get down this path of I, I guess you can let your ego get in the way, and then once I sort of realised that some of these so-called hippies that used to tell me these things, and I thought, well, maybe there's a bit of merit to it, and then lo and behold, the science is there as well to support that idea. So I think that's where a lot of the, I guess, the the natural versus modern medicine fight can be is people first have to swallow their, their pride a little bit and, and maybe go, well, maybe it isn't the only way. As smart as we are, we there is you know still a lot to be learned from nature. It's been successful for how long? So who are we to think in the last couple of hundred years, we're all of a sudden smarter than nature? When you were talking before about the plants being picked at different times and they have different colours, for example, I was reading a book the other week and it, it was talking about witches' potions or natural remedy potions and it said you've got to pick this plant at a full moon in June. You just wonder how much of that actually might have a little bit of truth in it as well. Well, those sort of philosophies around permaculture, etc. I'm not completely across, but like a good similar example I could use around the full moon would be parasites. Parasites are a lot more active closer to a full moon. So you'll see people with an overgrowth of a parasite, like a common one that we see in Australia is blastocystitis and diatomeba fragilis. They're more active around a full moon. So some people will see an increase in symptoms, certainly in the lead up to a full moon. And interestingly, parasites, the way they work, your body can't basically, if you've got like a bacteria or a virus, Components of your immune system can gobble that up and deal with it an infection that way. But a parasitic cell is actually bigger than our immune cells. So our body's only way of getting rid of it is to flush it out. So the mechanism is via an increase of histamine. So the body tries to flush it out. So that's why you'll see like sometimes you see mucus in poos or increase in runny nose or it can feel a bit sneezy or hay feverish. So we'd see changes in those in those symptoms as the body tries to rid a parasite or if it's a bit more angry about the parasite being there. And again, you only have to talk to anyone that sort of works in emergency services or nurses who work in nursing homes. The old saying that people go a bit crazy around a full moon, there's a fair bit of, of merit to that. And it's not just like a coincidence because the increase in, in histamine can change the brain because histamine is a neurotransmitter. And in the context of females and hormones, histamine will also feed estrogen. So I've known of women when their cycle tends to match the shape of the full moon cycle, they can often become uh, more symptomatic premenstrually. Yeah, it's interesting. 
It is fascinating because it really, like you say, it really does make us or make me aware of how much I don't know. I mean, we don't know what we don't know, but when I hear something like this, I go, oh my Lord, there is so much I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess the idea of you tell James fresh out of uni that the full moon will influence somebody's hay fever, I would have laughed at you and probably thought you really need to see someone. And that's the the fortune and benefit of seeing lots of patients over years as well. You kind of understand that if you just listen to people and rather than just boohoo and say, well, I don't know about that, therefore it doesn't exist or it's not real. If you listen to people and then look into it and, and you true enough discover these relationships. Are you going on to do a master's in nutrition? Because you said before you were putting all of your, you were amalgamating all of this extra knowledge that you'd learned and you're doing a master's in nutrition. Why nutrition? I think it's, well, (laughs) nutrition is really the foundation. But I suppose really I I feel like the dietary advice I give and all those things, I'm across it, but I'd really just like to formalise or have the piece of paper to show what I know. But originally I thought, oh, look, I'll just go and get the piece of paper. Sometimes we say it's a bit like someone that's been doing a job for 30 years and then all of a sudden they need the piece of paper to show that they know what they know. But it has been actually um, quite useful to to even see the the change in some of the, the information that you learn compared to when I first learned about nutrition, even at university when I was first there. I also originally put it down as just, a, oh, yeah, get the piece of paper. It's been interesting to, to see how it has changed and, and more of an openness. And, and I guess it's a very uh, big field of study now, as we all can appreciate that, you know, the impact that, that diet and, and uh, nutrition has on our health. So it's, yeah, it's been, it's been good, actually. Talk to me about how menopause affects your digestive system and nutritionally what you can do, because I know that's important, but I don't understand the mechanics of it. Well, perimenopause is typically um, where you'll see like lower levels of progesterone, which has a protective, well, progesterone in itself is protective against um, a lot of allergies. And that's why you'll see when progesterone is quite high during pregnancy, women that might have food intolerances all of a sudden don't have them. Like I've seen celiacs being able to eat gluten during pregnancy. It has this wonderful protective effect against allergies. And then with perimenopause, you see a drop in uh, progesterone and sometimes estrogen can cycle to three times higher. Then once you menopausal or you've gone through menopause, all those protective influences of those hormones are gone. So you'll often see an increase in food intolerances. So your big ticket items like dairy, wheat, you know, gluten, eggs, you know, you'll see that, that women are obviously a lot more sensitive to those. And that's just because the, the sheer change in, in hormones. So that's like the one component to that. And then the other part is really about the fact that because of the drop in estrogen, you become more sensitive to carbohydrates. So estrogen as itself makes women more efficient at metabolizing carbohydrates. So you might notice that women will typically more so store weight through hips, bum and thighs and not so much through their waist. And then as they go through menopause, they all of a sudden find that this belly has arrived. And that's just because the way the body changes, you know, the metabolism, the way it works changes a little bit. So normally women we'll have to shift them to a lower carbohydrate or lower sugar type of diet. And we start to look at some of those 
influences of, I guess, some of the issues that around your histamine-related foods. So a lot of this herbs and spices can create extra histamine, which can affect estrogen. So it's really, it depends on case by case, but you definitely see people with an increase in allergies just through doing nothing else but going through menopause or change of life. That actually makes a lot of sense because probably about three years ago now, I had to do an elimination diet because I couldn't eat anything without feeling shocking. (laughs) Yeah, I think nightshades in particular. Yeah, nightshades in particular. So I found for me personally, it was gluten, nightshades, legumes, but soy is worse. And even the nuts like Brazil nuts and cashews, I can eat nuts in small quantities, but not and it was just like everything I enjoy, I can't eat anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And a lot of the foods that you mentioned have a high histamine load. So that's why you see that. I guess the one of the ways that, well, firstly, I should tell you that that's usually not forever. That's good news there. And just by doing basics like healing the gut or, or looking at some of the other things that we can do to, to make the gut a little bit happier, you can usually reintroduce those things. And the other important fact, which I haven't um, mentioned yet, is that sometimes it's not that you have a reaction to the food itself. So it's not an allergic reaction. It's actually the foods that are interacting with the gut bugs and the gut bugs are creating the inflammatory reaction. And you'll see that with often when women eat even more healthily, they're eating more fiber and fiber feeds bacteria. And it's the bacteria that create the immune response. So it can be a little bit tricky, but just rest assured it's not forever. And why is it not forever? What happens? What changes? So your your body adjusts and, and re-regulates. So it kind of goes through this transition. As you can imagine, you've had all these hormones screaming at all these receptors from puberty onwards, and then you go through second puberty, as I sometimes call perimenopause, where everything then you can, I always like, and I use the example, imagine if you had a neighbor that played loud music all day, every day, all day, every day, you'd eventually become background noise. So that's kind of like the annoying part when they start playing the music is, is the puberty, all the hormones are like raging, all the loud music's there, then the body adjusts, and then menopause is when they suddenly turn the music off. And you feel lost because you're like, oh, where's this music going? So yeah, what you've, I, I guess you're waiting on the receptors to, to readjust and re-regulate. And, and once that happens, usually a lot of the, the allergies and things like that go back to normal. Well, that'd be nice. So how do you take care of your gut health in the meantime? What do you need? What is the easiest thing you can do to make a difference? Yeah, so it can be simple or it can be complicated. Usually I would start with, you know, even things with like food diaries where you can work out, you go, oh, okay. I noticed that when I ate that, I felt a little bit more bloated. And then even if it was a food that you tolerated for a long time, you might discover that you just can't have it. But your your big ticket items like dairy and, and gluten are very inflammatory for most people. And what they do is because they create a phenomenon called leaky gut, which I'm not sure of you know, if you're aware of that, essentially it's where your, your gut becomes more permeable. So that means that your immune system becomes a little bit more hypersensitive across the board. If you remove some of those more triggered or inflammatory foods, the gut can settle down a little bit and can sort of those leaks or gaps in the gut can sort of close back together. And then that will reduce a lot of your susceptibility to other allergens. 
So sometimes doing a little bit of an elimination of those things can mean that you can tolerate some of the other foods a bit, a little bit. Some instances I'll use powders that heal the leaky gut. So I'll things like glutamine, zinc, slippery arm, turmeric, they're really good nutrients for healing the gut. So we might just do a little bit of a protocol where we heal that gut lining. Sometimes I'll do little bits of gut cleansers. I don't like to use the gut cleanse terminology, but what I mean is we use different um, herbs or spices or nutrients that chip away at some of the dodgy bugs that are inflammatory and we feed the ones that are more anti-inflammatory. And that's the sort of way that I would usually approach looking after the gut. That herb that I mentioned earlier, berberine, that's a nice herb that actually sort of kills off the dodgy guys and, and feeds and encourages the good guys. And thankfully, it helps with being leaner too to get some of that is it spelled the same way as the the clothing label b-u-r-b-e-r-r-y uh it's berberine so b-e-r-b-e-r-i-n-e berberine okay so kind of like wolverine but berberine kind of thing correct (laughs) thanks for that i'll use that in clinic (laughs) (laughs) my brain's really good at making connecting the dots it's a bit too good sometimes We'll wrap up in a minute. Tell me how people can get in touch with you and all your your information and your details and what you can do for people too. Our business is called Australian Nutrition Centre. We've got all the usual sort of social media avenues like Instagram and Facebook. And my wife has has organised a TikTok for us and she's a, a TikTok master. And that's another interesting thing. But we've obviously got a website as well, australiannutritioncenter.com.au. So people can get in touch that way. We do consultations via Skype and Zoom as well. And we're, we're located in sunny Townsville, North Queensland. So we can see people in clinic. But if people have questions or they're, they're looking for, for more information, we've got myself and, and, and many other staff that can help out. And our website has some good information as well. And we often write blogs. And we have an emailing list. So if anyone would like any more info or wants to reach out, that's the best way to get in touch. Fantastic. So tell me who, because you said we got lots of staff. What else do you do? What are the specialties in there? We've got a health coach um, who basically will work with existing clients. To So a lot of people will struggle with, I guess, sticking to a plan. So my job is to come up with a plan and our health coach is there to help them stick to the plan. So sometimes it's people start off like anything. They start off all guns blazing, all motivated, and then life gets in the way. And our our health coach's job is to keep people on track. We've got a couple of retail staff as well. So our store is actually a clinic, but it's also a health food store as well. So people can just come in and have a chat to our staff. And and my wife, she's actually a pharmacist as well, but she specializes um, in some slightly different topics. I handle a lot of female health and fertility and, and gut health and, well, I guess everything, sleep, stress, all the above. And, and she likes to focus on skin and, and pregnancy health. Let's talk about sleep because sleep's one of the, quickly, sleep's one yeah. of the big things in perimenopause. That's one of the, the big, <laughs> one of the big complaints. Yes. How do you get over that? Because it's, it's different. Some people have trouble falling asleep. Other people wake up at certain times or just doze the whole night. What causes yes. that? What can you do to help yourself with that? 
Well, million dollar question. It, it is a little bit different for everybody. And how long do we have? But the, there's a couple of components. Firstly, remembering when I was talking about the influence that hormones have on the brain. So essentially the brain, the way it hand or its metabolism, the, the way the brain handles energy is different. So with the drop in, in estrogen, the brain becomes less efficient at using glucose as a fuel. So that starts to disrupt the neurotransmitters. So sometimes it's about, you know, reducing inflammation. So do we look at diet? As you quite rightly pointed out, getting to sleep is different to staying asleep. You know, so staying asleep can be more to do with things like serotonin. So sometimes we'll work on the serotonin pathway. It's to do with temperature, like our body likes to be at a certain temperature. And one of my favorite nutrients is glycine, which helps lower the core body temperature, but it also helps with detoxification. So I'll often put people on glycine and it works well because it tastes like sugar. It's literally like eating a teaspoon of sugar and we can have that before bed and that just cools the, the core body temperature down. I guess, like I said, where do we begin? Um, modifying stress hormones. I mean, dare I say it, alcohol is very disruptive to sleep, unfortunately, and especially because of the way it affects the brain. It's different for everybody, but there's some usually some pretty basic things we can start with. And, you know, we'll, we'll always focus with diet and, and even basic nutrients like zinc and magnesium and B vitamins are, are a great place to start. There's, there's so much information you've got here. I just want to carry on talking. I really appreciate your time. It's been really fascinating. All of the links to James and the information about today's podcast will be on the podcast webpage and you can get in touch with James from there. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. for joining us this week on menopause marriage and motherhood make sure you subscribe to the show on your favorite player and while you're at it we'd love you to leave us a rating on itunes or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show that would be amazing too be sure to tune in next week for the next episode and remember if you're busy thinking about what you can't have how on earth are you going to enjoy what you can have see you next week